Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and I'm joined today by an all-German panel for a podcast on Germany's leadership in the European Union. On the phone from, I think, somewhere near Berlin, we've got Franziska Brandner, who is an MP in the German Bundestag for the Green Party. And Franziska is a perfect example of a, of a German export. She's studied and worked in Freiburg, Tel Aviv, Washington, D.C., Paris, New York, and Berlin, and Oxford as well, I think. Um, from our Berlin office, we have Josef Janning, who is a senior policy fellow and uh, uh, head of our uh, activities in, in Germany, and uh, we also have Sebastian Delin, a sen- another senior policy fellow, professor of international economics in Berlin, and also author of our policy brief on a German model for Europe, question mark. And finally, sitting next to me in London is Ulrike Franke, research assistant here at ECFR, another ardent European who's lived and studied um, around the EU, but comes from, from Germany uh, originally. And the question we're really trying to answer is, is what the fallout from the Greek crisis and its possible resolution has been for European perceptions of Germany and for the future of the European project. It's not uh, that long ago that Radek Sikorski, who was then the Poland, Polish foreign minister, famously uh, travelled to Germany and said that he, I fear German power less than I'm beginning to fear German inactivity. So even though it was only four years ago, it feels like a different planet from some of the Anglo-Saxon media portrayal of Germany's uh, contributions to the to the Greek crisis in, in recent days. And um, we've both, I think, seen some more German leadership, but there does seem to be a widespread sense of buyer's remorse in, in many different parts of the continent. So before we start having a wider discussion, um, Ulrich has been reading both a lot of the, the primary commentary on Germany's role, but also some of the, the way that Germans are uh, commenting on it. And it seems to have led to an even more anxious debate within Germany than that which we're seeing outside. Ulrike, do you want to tell us a bit about what's out there? Sure, absolutely. Um, I have to say I was quite shocked by the anti-German rhetoric in the media and the aftermath of the deal. And I've just picked a few examples. So in foreign policy, for instance, you could read the following. Europe's creditor-in-chief has trampled over values like democracy and national sovereignty and left the vassal state in its wake. Which country will be next? Let's be clear, what Berlin and Frankfurt have done to Greece, they can and will do to others. So this is um, uh, an article that has been shared over 12,000 times. And the author, Philippe Legrand, is an economic or was an economic advisor to the president of the European Union. So this is the kind of language we hear um, in, in several publications. Le Monde also ran an article about the night when Germany broke Greece. The New York Times has written quite extensively about the angry Germans. And while I haven't come across it yet, I'm pretty sure that somewhere there's an article out there about the ugly German. Um, Saloon, the website, has written, 
The flag of Europe still has 12 stars on it and organizations with names like Eurogroup and European Commission and European Council still persists. But despite the unfortunate historical overtones, in order to be accurate, we need to call the governing body in Europe the German Empire after the events of this weekend. So um, I think I think this is... Uh, Quite concerning as a German, I, I have to say, I'm quite concerned about this. And this, there isn't only kind of press coverage. There's also um, a lot of things happening on Twitter. So we had these three hashtags: boycott Germany, don't buy German, and this is a coup that have been trending over the recent days. Um, interestingly, mainly in German, and that is something we can we can talk about. Um, but definitely, a quite quite a lot of people are upset uh, with Germany and. I am relatively concerned with this, regardless of whether I agree with specific German policies. So, Francisca, maybe I can come to you first. You sit yeah. in the imperial capital uh, much of the time, and you're going to be one of the people who has to vote through these different attempts to trample on other people's democracy. How do you feel about the, the debate that's been unleashed you know, what worries me sometimes is that this entire debate is not really reflected a lot within the German debate. Uh, and that whoever brings it up says, oh, there are many people out there who hate us, uh, but that's normal if you're in the leading position. So it's sort of, you know, um, acknowledging it a certain way, uh, but not finding it really troublesome. Uh, and, and I think that is uh, what has been disturbing me most. I think for me the big turning point last weekend was that for the first time Germany was putting the Brexit officially on the table and not just as a as negotiating strategy but as on substance. And that meant for on substance less Europe for the first time in a German policy and that for me is very troublesome. So, um, Josef, you're uh, sitting in, in Berlin in our office, you're spending a lot of time both thinking about Germany's Europe policy, but also dealing with international reactions. What was most troubling for you about the debate we've had over the last couple of weeks? Well, there are two things that uh, uh, keep me busy intellectually, so to say. Uh, the one thing is uh, this uh, concert of voices of uh, international, if not global, economists. Now, people like Jeffrey Sachs, uh, Joseph Stieglitz, uh, uh, Paul Krugman, uh, who have been uh, voicing... Um, uh, very stark criticism uh, against this policy, and I believe uh, uh, a it does have power. Uh, they have a multiplication power that is probably unmatched by many other people. Uh, but b it tends to overlook two things: uh, it overlooks the way that decisions are made inside the eurozone, that it is indeed an agreement um, uh, and a negotiation process among governments, uh, in which uh, basically every government uh, has a veto position. Uh, and on the other side, uh, I think they have uh, overlooked the uh, uh, significant governance weakness uh, in Greece, which has been constraining the options. So these two factors that have been very significant to the uh, substance and the style or tone of the debates uh, have been overlooked in the outside debate. The other thing that puzzles me... Um, and disturbs me is uh, uh, people I, I very much respect, like Jürgen Habermas, uh, saying that Germany in one night, or the German government, uh, to be precise, in one night threw overboard all the reputation it had gained in decades ago. Uh, that indeed uh, signals uh, that uh, there is either a major policy problem, 
or there is a major communication problem for the German government, um, and both uh, would have significant impact on the kind of leadership role that Germany can play in Europe. So, Sebastian, you've been pretty critical of a lot of German policy over the last few years since the beginning of the Euro crisis. Um, do you think that what has happened now is inevitable, given the policy positions that the government is, is wedded to? Or do you think that things have been made even worse as a result of uh, communications? Uh, frankly, I think the package they have now agreed upon is something which is, um, well, economically just not sound. Everyone, and I mean the economist put it, everyone who can count now knows that Greece is insolvent. And insolvent for a country means that uh, within reasonable assumptions, they cannot bring back public finances to to sustainable path. That means they have accumulated so much debt in the, in the, in the past mm -hmm. that even if they make the harshest cuts uh, one can imagine by economic logic because of the consequence of austerity and so on, they will not get to a debt-to-GDP ratio which is sustainable in the long run. If this is true, and I mean the IMF, which I think we, we can say is, is not uh, an, an organization which is usually in favor of left-wing populist governments, even they say Greece is insolvent according to that definition. So if that is true, what you need is a debt relief, a debt restructuring. And this is exactly what the Germans have uh, denied Greece to even talk about. And so um, this, this, this outcome, the package here, uh, this will only prolong the suffering in Greece and will not bring us a final solution of, of the problem. And if this package is there because Germany pushed it through, then I think there is plenty of blame to go around for the German government. It's just, uh, I know Mr. Schäuble is not an economist, but a lawyer, and the lawyers sometimes see things differently, but you simply cannot legislate against economic logic here. So I understand why, why some of the Anglo-Saxons are um, very angry with, with Germany. Uh, and in addition, you have the feeling that Germany did not really negotiate in good faith because these things are so obvious. One would think that someone with the experience and, I mean, w with a big, efficient administration like the German finance minister uh, should have seen that. Can so I disagree with that? Go for it, Josef. Um, I, I don't want to disagree on the, on, the, on the logic that Sebastian was implying. I think from an economic point of view, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I look at the political uh, logic. I look at the at the politics of things, and what I see there is uh, uh, yes, probably uh, the view that Sebastian has put forward uh, is increasingly shared in the German finance ministry. Um, but there are the uh, constraints uh, on the in, inside the eurozone. So debt relief and debt rescheduling are two different things. Uh, my understanding is that uh, if a package is being negotiated over the next weeks with Greece it will contain uh, debt uh, rescheduling because the, the numbers are as they are, and Sebastian is absolutely right on this. A debt relief inside the Eurozone uh, is legally not possible. So you that's have what the finance ministry claims. Sorry, well, I, but, but I, I think this is very much disputed. There, there are people who, I mean, people who, who say it's not a problem. The German finance ministry is saying it is a problem, but this at least is disputable. But uh, well, Sebastian, I, can you explain to me, because I'm, I'm not enough of an economist to really understand this, what is the difference between debt relief and debt rescheduling? I mean, if you reschedule it so it has to be paid in the year 4000, for example, is that not 
more or less the same as, as giving debt relief or is there any... um, again i'm uh, the the obviously the lawyers in the finance ministry say well believe that this is a different thing because the maastricht treaty is saying that um, the partner countries are not allowed to assume liabilities for another country uh, so they say if you write down the debt now and continue to charge normal interest rates, this is nominal uh, debt haircut, which is not allowed. But if you reschedule, saying, well, for 100 years, Greece doesn't pay any interest rate, and then they repay the debt, um, then this is allowed. Of course, economically, this is pretty much the same. If we would turn Greece debt, a Greek debt into, uh, Greek's debt into a perpetual loan at 0% interest rate, effectively, it would be cancelled. The same thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I think this is uh, this is semantics. Really legally, and yeah, it's semantics. I, uh, yeah. Pardon? It's semantics. Yeah. So so I think um, and and I think serious uh, judges would see it the same way. So I don't I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be able to to even do a haircut within the eurozone. And Francesca, because you're going to be sitting in the debates and the discussions when when. Uh, it comes back to the, the Bundestag. How much political space do you think that Scheibler and the German government actually would have to go down that route? I mean, how much of this is ideology and how much of this is uh, political constraints? Because Scheibler uh, has just given this interview to the Spiegel Online where he, he talks about how his email account was completely stuffed and 90% of them were expressions of opinion that supported me. So Paul Krugman has not yeah. been emailing in very much by the sound of it. But... Um, <laughs> What do you think the kind of internal politics in Germany is, is, is going to be like on, around these issues of, of the debt? You know, I think it, it depends on lo a lot on the leadership and the media um, opinions. You can see that, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, nobody even dared to speak about the third package uh, for Greece, and now we're there. Um, so, for, and, you know, still a lot voted in favor of it, even from within the government. There were only, you know, there were still more than 100 over the necessary votes. Um, so I think it depends a lot on how it's sold. Uh, and that's why the semantics matter in terms of restructuring or rescheduling or, uh, or, or, you know, debt relief, um, on, in terms of how you present it to the German citizens. Um, and, and I think that will be a lot about the discussions. Um, and the debate has been very much focused on economics, on legal aspects. Mr. Scholz's main argument was always, you know, this is the law, these are the rules, we have to keep to the rules, which is absurd because if the rules don't work and if the, the rules, you know, destroy a country, then, you know, you need to adapt the rules. Um, and we have done, we have adopted uh, new rules so many um, times the rules within uh, the EU um, that, you know, it's, it's not as if these are in stone forever. So that has been a bit of the debate, and I think we won't get away from that at all. And choice is very much popular with these views, um, even though there's growing also feeling that he has overstretched it a bit too far, and people were a bit, you know, scared when they saw what happened then. There is something that surprises me, though. I mean, we all talk as if there's only Germany and if Germany decides everything. I mean, Varoufakis has made this point very clear in talks of the Eurozone as an orchestra being led by Schäuble. But I wonder, I mean, do, do, do you feel that is, this is true? Um, Schäuble has just said in this recent Spiegel um, interview that there is no German dominance. Uh, Germany is just in a good position economically. 
But for instance, in contrast to France and Britain, Germany is not a member of the United States, uh, sorry, United Nations Security Council. So he denies that Germany is dominating everything. But we seem to be implying that the only relevant actor here is Germany. Is that true? No, it is not. Uh, there, there, of course, there is dominance. You know, this is political uh, communication to deny that. But there is no hegemony uh, in that sense. Uh, Germany is absolutely dominant in the debate because uh, there are a number of affluent and not so affluent smaller member states of the Eurozone uh, which take a much harder line. Uh, and if uh, Germany would not be representing that camp, uh, we would see uh, a rather diffuse and, and controversial debate opening up. Uh, think of the uh, the Finnish government, usually, you know, a moderate government, but now they have the true Finns in the coalition, and they have been uh, voicing uh, ideas of a Finnexit, of, of Finland leaving the euro if uh, uh, the subsidizing of Greece goes on. So, you know, this helps uh, certainly Germany to, to be in that uh, absolutely pivotal uh, position, because if the Germans uh, can, as Merkel did, agree uh, to uh, go for another round of negotiations, that usually brings around all of the hardliners inside the Eurogroup. At the same I mean, time, you to, see... Sorry. Sebastian, okay. Sorry, Sebastian, go ahead. I mean, you just need to keep in mind that for the next ESM loan, if you make it an emergency loan, you only need 85% of the capital votes. So, I mean, countries like Estonia, Latvia, Slovakia, Slovenia, frankly, they do not count much here. Oh, and Germany has a veto position. Yes. Germany yes. alone I, uh, will prevent an 85% threshold. Sure. Maybe I can just come in because I, you know, I would never say it's all about Germany. Of course, you know, Varoufakis played a terrible role and I think Tsipras wasn't so well prepared and over months they didn't come up with very concrete proposals. Um, so I think, you know, there's a, a lot that goes uh, for, for a lot of sides. But I still think that Germany has a crucial role. It's dominant. Uh, in of you know of the creditor side, um, I think in terms of Scholz's role of putting the Brexit on the table, which other countries had not done, even if some you know would be in agreement with it, um, you know it was Germany daring to put it on the table, not Finland, not Slovenia, etc. And that I think still makes a difference, um, which I you know which which I think is important to keep in in mind. Uh, yes, but Francisca, uh, if I can jump in there, uh, you know, I think that particular point, uh, I have some difficulties to see uh, where all the anger is. You know, if I if I would be um, uh, in Schäuble's uh, uh, position, I would not want to go into negotiations uh, which uh, have only the option of either trying out whether Tsipras, after the referendum he won, would be ready for a 180-degree turnaround, or... Uh, facing the specter of a uh, sort of chaotic uh, uh, Grexit scenario uh, triggered by um, the collapse of Greek banks. So in, from that angle, to me, it, it sounds rather uh, reasonable to uh, at least ventilate an option to say, is there, is there a way between these two alternatives? Let's assume Tsipras will not move and we don't want chaos. What could we do? And I found remarkable that uh, Schäuble's people himself and Schäuble endorsed that, even put in that paragraph where they describe briefly this Brexit option, uh, a mentioning of the Paris Club, which actually is the instrument uh, for organizing a haircut. 
you know, he was pointing to a scenario by which Greece would kind of partly leave the Eurozone, uh, possibly get a haircut, and then come back. I find that rather radical. But, but if it would be for a second, that would be correct. You know, that's what a lot of people, the commentators in Germany, were joking about. Let's leave Greece for a second and then make the yeah. haircut and let it come back. But I was not sure of this plan. It was for a few years. It was and that's what yeah. people, yeah, exactly. And that's where people just thought that's so unrealistic. And that's the fact of the Brexit. Um, so I think, you know, your argument would hold true if it was for a second just to get around the legal issue. Does anyone think it was I a think- real proposal? I mean, it kind of, you know, it, it came just as Greece was coming back to the table after their no vote. It looked like pure spoilerism to the outside. I mean, you could, it was not properly worked out. It was kind of insane. Why five years? It just seemed like a completely bizarre thing to do. Hmm. No, to I mean, me, to I, me I, it sounded like a time out, a kind of punishment. Let's put Greece in the corner for five years and see how they like us and they're going to come back. Frankly, I, I think uh, at least there are some people in the German finance ministry uh, who actually see that as, as, as part of a broader strategy. And uh, what Varoufakis has, been, Varoufakis has been writing in the Zeit um, of, of last week, this is something I've heard from, from people inside the finance ministry, that some people there have been saying, well, let's kick Greece out and then the rest will behave. And if something really goes wrong, we offer a little bit like uh, elements like maybe euro bonds or limited euro bonds in, in exchange. The others have to accept our budget commissioner who can veto national budgets and we get core Europe, core eurozone, which is closer integrated but which plays to German roots and follows them. And some of them seem to be thinking of a Grexit of part of that broader strategy. And I think this is a problem in these negotiations because it's not just to, to, uh, to, to look for an option which is a good option for Greece, but it is something to put something on the table to get all the others, or at least the majority of the others, to um, sign up for rules which they don't like. And I think this is also what, what has created so much uh, anger and distrust that the people have gotten the feeling that Schäuble isn't really looking for the broader best or at least not as uh, in a way as it's perceived by the others but by by way to pursue strategic aims by maybe kicking Greece out. And how do we think that this is going to change the nature of Germany's role going forward? Because certainly there has been a huge backlash in the Anglo-Saxon media. There was tensions with France and with with Italy mm. and with other countries. Um, how do we see this playing out? Is this just part of the normal toings and throwings of the Franco-German relationship and and uh, Anglo-Saxon media and their kind of obsessions, or has something kind of big happened to the relationship which will have longer-term implications? You know, can I maybe chip in on that? Because I think what changed is the question of trust. And we have been speaking in Germany a lot about the trust we have in the Greek government and the trust of the financial markets in the euro, etc. And I think what that broke for me was sort of the trust of the system, be it the financial system, the European partners, etc. But Germany would be there and would always step up to keep the community joined. And I think that trust is sort of gone. And I think that is a lot, uh, and it might undermine 
you're uh, much more fundamentally than we believe today. It's that trust question of where your uh, Germany stands in Europe. Um, that is for me the the big difference. Um, you know, we might agree again afterwards on points. I um, even find common ways in dealing with Greece, but it's the trust that is first of all gone. And how, how do you think you should go about restoring that, Francisco? Do you think Schäuble needs to go? No, I think you know he needs to understand very clearly that the, uh, the that his coalition partner. And also Merkel is following a different line. That what comes to what Sebastian said. Is there a substantive different vision for Europe behind Schäuble's line and that of uh, Gabriel and Merkel? Because then we need to discuss it, what kind of Europe we, we stand for. Um, and I think unless we have had this debate and found a joint answer, this trust won't come back. What do the other three of you think? I have three points. Uh, one is, uh, I believe that with the uh, intensity and type of conflicts we're dealing with inside the European Union, um, uh, a mode of robust leadership is probably unavoidable. Uh, and um, uh, Germany, by circumstance, has to fill that role and is filling that role in a way that probably is... Uh, uh, is is not used uh, or is not is not uh, familiar uh, for many people. The second thing is, um, I think much will depend on whether um, Germany finds the ability to smart leadership, uh, which means if if Germany is preoccupied a lot with keeping the rules framework intact, uh, then it would be very well advised to to now not just sit on the latest French proposals for this gouvernement économique, but rather take it up and merge the ideas that the French have uh, with the rules-based mm -hmm. focus of, of the German side. And third and mm -hmm. final, I think it is absolutely necessary uh, to act politically uh, to take up what Francisca has been saying. Um, I would strongly recommend that Germany and France together uh, offer Greece a form of a trilateral Germany, France, and Greece transformation partnership by which they bring in uh, resources, time, people, know-how, equipment of their own uh, to help Greece uh, to uh, make the kind of reforms that go beyond uh, cutting uh, budget lines here and there. You know, because this would actually address the essential argument on the German side for not moving uh, on the, on the uh, debt issue that they simply don't believe that the Greek government will be able uh, to implement the reforms that Germany, among others, is demanding from Greece. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, if you would have a political gesture of that sort, uh, you, would, you could make visible that Germany's prime interest is still to move this Europe ahead, uh, to keep the balance between the various political camps, uh, but it needs to be done. You know, I I think if if we don't see gestures of my points number two and three, we will see uh, the more uh, you know ugly side of leadership uh, because of these uh, strong asymmetries inside the European Union. Yeah, I very much agree with Francisca that trust has been destroyed, and I also feel that this time this goes deeper than just the state or governmental level. So this has reached the, the European public, the German public, the Greece public, and they are now starting to mistrust each other. So I really feel that it's the the role of the German government to now work 
together with its partners, especially France, to kind of rebuild this trust and make, as you say, use of the political gesture and show that, that Germany is still supporting Europe and supporting the European people. So, Sebastian, yes. what do you think? Do you think it's still possible to do that or do you think it's too late now? <laughs> well, I mean, you can always uh, fix things. And, I mean, the good thing is that Schäuble will go at some point anyway because he's very old and at some point he has to retire. Uh, but, uh, frankly, I ask myself, um, or I think we, we, need to, we need to give something now to prove that uh, we haven't changed to a path where we only have our own interest in, in mind and um, uh, not the broader interest anymore. I mean, uh, if a country is a benign hegemon or, or a well-meaning hegemon, they always take the other interests into account. And this, frankly, I cannot see for this package because this package is just, I mean, it doesn't solve anything, any of the problems which we had on the table. Uh, I mean, you can say it has played to the political attitude or the political opinion in, in Germany, to the public opinion. Um, but you, you cannot say more than that because it's, it's very, un unless we really engineer now a debt restructuring or debt relief, um, this this will will just lead for to 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 a new debate about Brexit uh, a couple of months or a couple of years down the road. Okay. Can I can I add something in terms of you know the German French? I thought it was interesting this week of coming up with now forward-looking proposals of how to strengthen the eurozone. There is no such proposal coming out of Berlin, and I think you know that would be high time that Germany also says you know we also have a to strengthen the eurozone, we will come up with proposals which are democratic. Uh, Olone also made that point, uh, and I think you know that would be a very important sign, um, and not to leave it just to the French. Well, that we'll be watching this space uh, over the next few weeks to see whether some of imaginative proposals that you all put forward come out, whether there are comings and goings in the in the. Uh, German finance ministry as part of the offering to the rest of Europe and um, I'm sure we'll be returning to this very very often but it was great to, to have um, the three of you giving three very different perspectives on, on Germany and its role in the, in the Greek crisis so far but also some ideas on how Germany can actually restore the enthusiasm for German leadership that was so present at the beginning of the, the Euro crisis. Uh, this brings us to the last bit of the podcast, which is the, the bookshelf segment where we all talk about what we're reading at the moment. Um, Ulrika, do you want to go first? Sure, absolutely. Um, I am currently reading a, a rather long book written by a friend of mine, and it's a non-fiction book about drones um, and the, the U.S. use of drones in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. It's called Sudden Justice by Chris Woods, a British journalist who worked for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism here in London before writing this book. And I mean, obviously, it's not the only book on the on the topic that is out there, but it, he has gotten amazing access in the U.S. and really describes what's going on in, in great detail, so I can very much recommend it to anyone wants to find out more about these so-called remote-controlled wars. Okay. Uh, Francisca, what, what are you reading at the moment? Is I'm reading uh, La Soumission by Ulbeck, and I, 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 it's not directly linked to our debate, but I think in a way it is, because it's sort of also trying to understand, for me, reading it, I'm trying to understand better on how we get all these 
you know, new right-wing, anti-European, very national, um, old-style movements again uh, in those spheres in our societies. So in that sense, you know, in terms of how we could get to deeper integrated Eurozone, we have to overcome so much. Um, and, you know, what obstacles are on the road to that? I think the Soumission gives some hints at where those obstacles lie. Indeed, I'm reading it as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sebastian, what, what's on your bookshelf? Well, so my bookshelf that I haven't uh, had a chance to really read it, um, it's Inequality, What Can Be Done by Anthony B. Atkinson. And it's, um, well, it's discussed in economic circles as the book which provides some of the solutions to what Thomas Piketty wrote uh, and what was discussed over the last couple of years or so. So I think, um, well, I hope it's a thrilling read, but I, I cannot say much about it so far. And what about you, Josef? Well, when I was uh, first uh, uh, looking at this book on my bookshelf, uh, uh, I wanted to read it because of the Ukraine crisis, but I haven't done so. But now I will, um, because it's connected to our topic. It's Stephen Zabo's Germany, Russia, and the Rise of Geoeconomics. Uh, because it does talk a lot about Russia, this book, but I think it does talk more about Germany and does talk more about um, how does uh, uh, politics change uh, when uh, the economic interests uh, uh, begin to prevail over other normative um, milieu interests or security interests. And to many uh, observers and Stephen Zabo alike, uh, uh, this is happening in Germany now. And I, I'm very curious to see how he builds that argument um, because it's, it has become a rather popular uh, argument and I want to see uh, how he does that. Uh, I think Germany and Russia are two very, very different cases in this. I think Russia serves more as a prism through which to understand the way that uh, Germany is changing in the moment. Okay, and I'll uh, add to the pile of, uh, of books with, uh, it would be unfair of me not to log roll for my former colleague, Hans Kanani, whose book, The Paradox of German Power, seems to be a, a relevant uh, contribution to this discussion. He goes back and looks at the last 150 years of, of German history and tries to explain uh, both um, what defined German attitudes to power at the moment, but also how the German question has reoccurred in a new form as a result of the Euro crisis. And I think a lot of people might see some of his analysis as, as being quite Anglo-Saxon in terms of how he frames the issues, but he certainly uh, is somebody who's gone to Germany a lot, is now living in Germany again, and uh, is really trying to understand how this great country with this incredibly complex history is coming to terms with a different role at the whole at the, in the heart of Europe uh, something which we've been trying to do um, maybe with less success over the last half hour or so but anyway so that brings to an end a very interesting discussion about German leadership in Europe there are links to all the books that we mentioned and a lot of commentary on what's going on in Europe and on the German leadership on our website which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts from Franziska Brandner, Josef Janning, Ulrike Franke and Sebastian Dulin and myself, Mark Leonard, it's thank you for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katerina Botel. <laughs>